everybody, and welcome to Lighting the Pipes. This is another one of our Sherlock Select episodes for the summer session. And these are little revisitations of our first series, Sherlock Holmes Adventures. And we're doing these uh, in between our bigger reads. Our last big read was Ellis Peters' A Morbid Taste for Bones. And we're soon moving on, very soon in fact, to Ian Rankin and his first Rebus novel, Knots and Crosses. But before we get to that, myself, Scott, and Josh wanted to share with you the adventure of Black Peter from The Return of Sherlock Holmes. The adventure of Black Peter. Now, to me... Is that like a syphilitic member? Like, before we go into the context of this story, like, what are we getting into here, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's, uh, it's hot. It's hot. <laughs> Indeed. But uh, <laughs> in all seriousness, no, um, we talked about when we were introducing the previous uh, Sherlock Selects, the cardboard box, that this is very much another similar kind of tale involving domestic violence. Although mm-hmm. the victims of the, of the domestic violence, you know, they are spared, you know, the, the fate of the victims in the last book. And, uh, That's right, yeah. and a, a kind of, I guess, an outside source, if you will, uh, brings their misery to an end, uh, mm-hmm. as well as avenging the murder of, uh, of a son's father. So uh, mm-hmm. definitely a, a very complex story, but at the same time, a very simple story. Yeah, it is simple. And um, Sherlock... Um, is, is kind of here operating at the behest of Inspector Stanley Hopkins, yes. who's quite an interesting guy in the story, and I think really quite fun to follow here. Yeah, he's my favorite, like, non-Lestrade Scotland mm-hmm. Yard man, I would have to say. Mm-hmm. Lestrade knows what Holmes is about. Lestrade mm-hmm. is very arrogant, but he knows he needs Holmes, and he slightly admits to it, whereas right, yeah. uh, Hopkins... Uh, want, is a, seems to be a bit of a fanboy for uh, for Holmes, yeah. wanting to prove that he's as good as him or is learning from him. But his but his own youthful arrogance uh, gets in the way, and, and an innocent man gets arrested, at least for a little while. At least for a little while, yeah. And and while Black Peter doesn't exactly have a happy ending, as Josh already intimated, and of course as you will already know, uh, having read the story, I'm sure, listener, you're checking in on this uh, just as a bit of fun and refreshment for for after reading your Sherlock. Um, it is still, it is still kind of a dark story, you know. Uh, I, I love yeah. the geographical settings. Um, I love the forested area, the of course. The, yeah, the Weald, which is so nicely drawn out with its historical references here. And Conan Doyle knows a thing or two about it. You can kind of feel his pen eagerly writing across the page here with a bit of excitement yeah. as he delves back into mythic, mythic territory. Yeah, going into like, you know, ninth uh, century Viking invasions, you know, we're talking like Ragnar and Elford and all those boys, you know, and yeah, yeah. how they had to how they, how they had to burn down the forest to make the smelters. Very kind of Tolkienist mm-hmm. imagery too, if you think about it. Just the mm-hmm, idea of like yeah. burning all the wood to create all the iron for war and whatnot. So uh, I, I, sure. I always love the imagery of this particular story. Just the details of it, like when they walk into the cabin and find uh, Peter Carey dead, how he's speared to the wall, and uh, and just how. Uh, and how Holmes is already prepared for it, you know, when he's pr- practicing the harpoon on the pig. So it, mm-hmm. uh, it's very well put together. Uh, it's one of those stories that, again, yeah, Sherlock solves it all, very quickly, but we can follow along with kind of how he does it and, and, and not be too overwhelmed by how he figures it out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The secret, well, one of the secrets rests, doesn't it, Josh, in the initials CPR? It really does. <laughs> yeah. The good old Canadian Pacific Railroad. 
Uh, anyway. Moving forward, though, yeah, yeah, those are my thoughts on on Black Peter. Uh, I, I felt it was a very tight story, uh, evocative, made you think, mm-hmm. uh, made you feel something. Yeah. Um, and again, it's another perfect example of you want to get a taste of Sherlock Holmes. Take a bite out of this. Yeah, bingo. So we hope you enjoyed, everybody, and we'll we'll see you back here on Light in the Pipes very soon for Ian Rankin's Knots and Crosses. Looking forward to it. Until then, enjoy. Okay, segue from that back into the world of Holmes. Back into Victorian England, 1895. Let's get straight down to business. Our first story today is the adventure of Black Peter. Now, I'm down to get you some publication information for Black Peter, and you're going to uh, inspire us with a short summary. So basically, what you got to know for this is that it was published in February... Uh, well, the end of February in Collier's Weekly, 1904, and in the March edition of the Strand magazine. It was pretty well received as stories go, although this one, as we'll get into, is a little bit different to stories that we have read. Uh, I think it's it's very unique, actually, in a lot of ways. Uh, in terms of public reviews, Goodreads have a couple of things to say. Our friends at Goodreads, um, a new guy, haven't read much from him or tapped into his well, but his name is... A couple nice reviews out there, and this one Good. is a three-star three review. And it's it's good not, to see someone out there who you know who uh, cares about the opinions he's expressing, and because he you know he's about sharing the knowledge and sharing the love of books, and that's what I that's what I like when you have a good reviewer on on Goodreads, as opposed to some mindless tweet or you know what I mean. Uh, well, you took that and ran away with it, unfortunately, because what I was about to say is, although having looked at some <laughs> of his reviews, they're quite good. This one isn't so good. Uh, oh, it's short, sweet, funny, but not particularly enlightening. Three hmm. stars. Holmes stabs a dead pig with a harpoon! Exclamation mark. This, however, is a little bit better from... Uh, Not the most twisted Sherlock Holmes adventure, but the story is one hell of an entertainer. And another case where Mm. Holmes had to burn a lot of calories physically rather than using his genius. (laughs) I really enjoyed the raw brutality of sailors in this story and their blind rage. Not to forget their inhuman strength. Even though it was not a very complicated case for the great detective to solve... It had a lot of energy and blood, more blood than most of the Sherlock Holmes stories. That's a five-star so, review. Five-star rip. I yeah. think he likes the. I think our boy likes the gore. And my favorite of the bunch from another five-star review: Don't be a miserable ne'er-do-well who beats your wife and daughter, or you may get a harpoon through the heart, and no one will shed tears. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, Black Peter, enlighten, add context, color, decorate, bring us into the world of the story. And we'll get our jobs done. 1895 is a good year for our dynamic duo. And a Washington's chagrin, it almost comes crashing down when Holmes, having disappeared, ret- returns to 221B, brandishing a spear like some deerstalker wearing Anglo Queequeg. Oh boy, there goes his sanity, Watson says to himself, surprised that it took his friend this long to lose his mind. ACD then throws us into the year in review, following the big payoff of the Duke of Holderness continuity it's a wonderful thing that world builds the reader to insane fandom with a gnarly totally 
rad 80s montage of Sherlock doing the Pope of Fave and some guy uses canaries for nefarious doings. Does anybody else want to read that story? <laughs> Sherlock Holmes versus the canaries. It writes itself. And then meanwhile... It does. 80s montage, fighting crime, 80s montage, fighting crime, 1895. <laughs> then Sherlock return, disappears, then returns with a spear. Alas, it is not Queequeg that is possessing Holmes' divine spirit. In fact, it is, of course, Ahab, as the war against crime continues. The client du jour is Stanley Hopkins, a rookie of Scotland Yard. And given his attentiveness, it appears Holmes is now using his chemistry set to grow Scotland Yard DIs, hoping to break the mold with one that is actually competent at their job. Hopkins is investigating the death of an old sea dog named Peter, that's Black Peter to you, Carrie, an angry, violent man from Dundee. Poor Scott. Scotland is not... Uh, I'm surprised Arthur Conan Doyle was able to give a, bit, a little bit of uh, you know impartiality towards his native land, mm. uh, who has found himself transfixed to a spear in his personal little cabin, where he rests from dealing blows to his wife and daughter after going on a tear. So who cares if, if abusive Black Peter is dead? Hopkins, probably. He wants to solve the case as a means to boost his Scotland Yard stock and hopes Holmes can help him out. No wonder Jack the Ripper was never caught. Yeah. Holmes, Watson, and Hopkins head down to the crime scene, a little abode in Woodman's Lee in Sussex. This leads to the capture of John Hope Hopley Nelligan, a confused son of a disappeared banker who believes Carrie had known something about the disappearance of his father. A few passages before, Holmes notes to Hopkins that something was taken off the shelf of Carrie's cabin, and turns out it was a book, a ship's log to be precise, that Nelligan foolishly tries to return. He is caught red-handed. Sherlock throws his graduated cylinders, Bunsen burners at all, when his Scotland Yard experiment supercop succumbs to Lestrade syndrome and ignores all the evidence to arrest Nelligan for Carrie's murder. <laughs> but our man Sherlock is able to divine that Nelligan is innocent, despite the clear motive of Carrie somehow holding onto the metal case full of stock certificates that clearly belong to Nelligan's missing, nay, murdered dad. Resorting to his Rolodex of gambits, Holmes lobs a fake want ad pincher to nab Patrick Cairns, an old harpooner who sailed with Carrie on the Sea Unicorn, matching the tobacco on Cairns with the pouch of tobacco found at the crime scene with that of Cairns. Nelligan is exonerated and gets closure, though we don't see it, on how Carrie overtook the ship Dad was on and finding a plethora of certificates throws Nelligan into the North Sea, sans spectacular Viking funeral. <laughs> Carrie had summoned, summoned Cairns to his cabin in the woods to probably kill Cairns for being a witness Nelligan Sr.'s murder, but Cairns managed to get the upper hand with a harpoon. Justice isn't blind, it's just transfixed. <laughs> nice work. Yeah. Thank you. It just made it kind of made me think. Uh, it would have been cool if there was a Viking funeral part of that. There would have been, yeah. Viking funerals are always great. Anyway, okay, right, pal. So uh, we got our pipes lit. We got uh, principles. We've got uh, investigation. We have, of course, the perpetrators, and we've got the environs. Finally, we've got our secondary characters and players to the story, which we're going to give a mark out of five, total out of twenty-five. Help us with our index and so on and so forth. So, I got a couple of really cool points here that throughout our discussion I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to uh, to bring up. Some of these mm -hmm. I found through my research. Some of them were generously put out there for me in uh, the annotations by Leslie Klinger in, in the, the book that I've, uh, I've got. So, you want to just tap into the, the principles in this story? Yeah, uh, we, we can definitely do that. How did you find uh, Sherlock and Watson this time around? This time around, I found Sherlock and Watson pretty lame, to be perfectly honest. Um, Watson certainly more than Sherlock, and I think this is something we're seeing more of in The Return, is that 
he's Watson is really he's kind of utilized more as a heavy than anything else. Um, have, yeah, like a muscle, like Sherlock's yeah. muscle. Yeah. And also sort of like a stand-in for like Arthur Conan Doyle because I'm noticing how like they describe things. Uh, Watson is noticing all these little things that Holmes would also notice now too. But then when when Watson actually speaks, any kind of you know observant uh, t- intelligence just disappears because he's just as lost as. But it's like the narrator of it's like Watson the narrator and Watson the character are two different people, mm-hmm. especially when Watson speaks because he's then made the mouthpiece of the audience. What? And then you have, you know, the uh, the intelligent, uh, incisive mind w- working, following Sherlock around, and all these perfect observations, you know, all these like very key observations, like n- like noticing that that, that 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 the door was scratched and stuff like that. Someone had been in there, like those kind of things. The, the door to the cabin, I mean to say. Yeah, and he still does, of course, pick up on stuff, Sherlock. I'm not I'm not saying this in the you know he's not working here, but it's no. certainly lesser. Like Watson really doesn't do anything. He does hold a gun. Uh, the last few stories, like we're saying, you know, there's been an inertia with him. He's more of a sidecar partner. He's yes. not He's not really doing a hell of a lot. And I, I guess it's not <clears throat> it's not exactly a difficult case for Holmes to solve this one. He does wrestle with the villain, I guess, you know, and that's yes. kind of that's kind of interesting. But, uh, you know, he's funny in this one. He spears a pig yeah. and that's kind of cool. Like we see a bit more of his lighthearted side. Um, yes. And there there is some good comedy in this one through the dialogue, particularly. But. You know, I just, I like the story. I thought it was really cool. The story is good. But we've got him up against something. Like, I remember when I read the title of the Naval Treaty, I thought, oh, this is great. You know, he's, it's going to be like a Gloria Scott type thing. Like he's dealing with like the Navy and stuff. And no, it's just yeah. this moron that leaves for a cup of tea and gets something stolen. And then he has brain yeah. fever. And, you know, uh, kind of brain lamed, fever. <laughs> it kind of lamed me out of it. But in this one, I like that he's he's dealing with, you know, pirates and sailors and whaling ships. Yes. It's, it's a little bit cool. Like, the currency of the story is better for him, even yes. though it isn't really, for me at least, a challenging one for him. I, I went middle of the road with three out of five. Now, that's okay. that's how I felt. I mean, we can dig into it. We can go through a couple of quotes, some expressions, some cool stuff in the story. But overall, I went three out of five. I went to a four. Oh, I, cool. well, I I found I, I found Watson kind of an audience surrogate in this and just muscle, as, as we, we discussed I liked I liked the idea of Sherlock grooming, you know, some sort of uh, uh, Scotland Yard prodigy of his own, and uh, maybe he wants, you know, to spread the spread the I guess the cure through the rest of the department, right? Because they're so inept and whatnot, and he wants to create a team of crime fighters. And I and I kind of found that kind of like showing his, you know, his zeal for justice and and whatnot, and he wanted to improve Scotland Yard and with this young man Hopkins, and uh, and he seemed to like Hopkins. It's kind of like him, like. There's yeah, almost like an, an, an avuncular kind of affection that he has for the for the lad, and uh, even even though there's also a bit of like you know like uh, for the love of God you know thing about it, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I, I like I like that aspect of Holmes, and I like I like parts of his character, you know, just like uh, how he like you know he uh, took the money, took all the like, you know he took the money from Holderness, like those 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 little different traits, right? And and there's one trait uh, that you know that we'll discuss about him too about his sense of justice, and I think we'll get into that in the next story. Uh, but, um, overall, yeah, like I found that, um, Holmes's character stuck, uh, he stuck out in this, in, in this, and I was following him through the, each part of the, of, of the investigation and, and he played his, 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 his bit well, you know, in his own way. It was a very, it was a very simplistic, um, presentation of, of what he normally does, uh, how he solves the case and everything and his reactions, you know, they're obviously predictable, but you know, they work out. 
uh, it's very clear that you know that he's dealing with a red herring and that there's someone else who actually killed the person and he has all the evidence and he's not telling anybody because it's gonna be a big reveal at the end like so it so there is that functional aspect that's kind of a bit cliched but at the same time I like the add-on of him being like this uh, having you know having his own little prodigy there you know to or protege I should say uh, to um, make Scotland Yard better <laughs> make Scotland good, it's a good reading of it. It's a good yeah. reading of it, and I I like that you brought that up. It's probably something I overlooked a little bit in my desire to see Holmes doing more interesting things because he hasn't really done a lot of interesting things collectively in this collection of stories. Um, and so I think you're right, and I'll accept that. And maybe I should be a little higher um, because he does, impression. he does have gonna... a compassion for, for this does. guy Hopkins. You're right, and there is that human side that comes out for him. So even even though with Watson being kind of like a side note, I give this uh, principles of four just just because of this uh, different faucet of Holmes being displayed. All right, shall I? I mean, I, I got a little bit here of him talking with Hopkins at the beginning during the I guess client interview, if you can call it that. Um, this first part has a really nice description in it, I think, and the second part touches on that sort of jocular relationship he's trying to to do as a mentor, if indeed mentor is the right word to use, because let's face it, <laughs> Watson's still in the room, you know. Yes. Um, well, I have fairly steady nerves, as you know, Mr. Holmes, but I give you my word that I've got, I got a shake when I put my head into that little house. It was droning like a harmonium with the flies and blue bottles, and the floor and walls were like a slaughterhouse. He called it a cabin, and a cabin it was, sure enough, for you would have thought that you were in a ship. There was a bunk at one end, a sea chest, maps, charts, a picture of the sea unicorn, a line of logbooks on a shelf, all exactly as one would expect to find it in a captain's room. And there in the middle of it was the man himself, his face twisted like a lost soul in torment, and his great brindled beard stuck upward in his agony. Right through his broad breast, a steel harpoon had been driven, and it had sunk deep into the wood of the wall behind him. He was pinned like a beetle on a card. Of course, he was quite dead. Had been so from the instant that he had uttered a last yell of agony. I know your methods, sir, and I applied them. Before I permitted anything to be moved, I examined most carefully the ground outside, and also the floor of the room. There were no footmarks. Meaning that you saw none? I assure you, sir, there were none. My good Hopkins, I've investigated many crimes, but I have never yet seen one which was committed by a flying creature. As long as the criminal remains upon two legs, so long must there be some indentation, some abrasion, some trifling displacement which can be detected by the scientific researcher. It's incredible that this blood-bespattered room contained no trace which could have aided us. I understand, however, from the inquest that there were some objects which you failed to overlook. The young inspector winced at my companion's ironical comments. I was a fool not to call you in at the time, Mr. Holmes. However, that's past praying for now. Yes, there were several objects in the room which called for special attention. One was the harpoon with which the deed was committed. It had been snatched down from a rack on the wall. Two others remained there and there was a vacant place for the third. On the stock was engraved, SSC Unicorn, Dundee. This seemed to establish that the crime had been done in a moment of fury, and that the murderer had seized the first weapon which came into his way. The fact that the crime was committed at two in the morning, and yet Peter Carey was fully dressed, suggested that he had an appointment with the murderer, which is borne out by the fact that a bottle of rum and two dirty glasses stood upon the table. Yes, said Holmes, I think that both inferences are permissible. So yeah, it goes back and forth like that for another little while, and he he applauds him for some things and kind of strips him down lightly no. for other things. But it's less there is an affection, but it's not really avuncular. It's pedagogical almost. You know what I mean? Like uh, it's it's a uh, it's the student master or student tutor kind of dynamic. 
Hmm. You want me to give you some information on some of the places in this story? Because I found some neat stuff about them. Like Woodman's Lee and uh, Dundee or, for example, uh, Sussex or... No, not Dundee. Uh, I've been there a couple of times. It's a great city. Uh, it's a shipbuilding place, and it's you know on the east coast. The the Tay, I think it's the Tay up there by Dundee. Uh, mm. The mouth of yeah, it is Tay. Anyway, no, I'm not going to talk to you about Dundee. I was going to talk to you actually about the Ratcliffe Highway. Oh. Yeah, if uh, if I may, because it's well maybe not hugely important to the story, but it's it's an interesting little note here. It was very close to where the uh, where, where where the uh, where, where the murder was. That's right, yeah. Um, I thought this was interesting context. Ratcliffe Highway is notorious for organized crime in the 19th century, right? Uh, first of all, that's one thing that I didn't know, but I'll get that out there. Highwaymen, I'm guessing? Uh-huh. In the story, though, the environment isn't really developed. It's just kind of mentioned by Holmes. But it is pretty cool that as a disguise, because we learn at the beginning of the story that he's disguising himself a couple of different times, you know, yes. to, or he has five different places, like little spots around the city. And this is one of them. But I thought for the Ratcliffe Highway note that I, I'll just read this to you. Uh, the Ratcliffe Highway murders are one of a number of topics on which Holmes extemporaneously spoke to Watson in a study of Scarlet. Uh, these group, gruesome crimes were described by Thomas de Quincey in his seminal essay on murder considered as one of the fine arts. Ratcliffe Highway is a thoroughfare running parallel to the Thames and was a bustling hub of shops, lodging houses and saloons catering to sailors and others involved in the shipping trade. Montague Williams, writing in Round London, down east and up west, in 1894, wrote about the street's rough-and-tumbled reputation in the 1860s, disdainfully called this section of town, quote, a terrible disgrace to London. It would, have, it would have been madness for any respectable woman, or, for the matter, any well-dressed man, to proceed thither alone. The police themselves seldom venture there to save in twos and threes, and brutal assaults upon them were frequent occurrence. Williams did concede that the conditions at Ratcliffe Highway had improved slightly by the 1890s, citing a decline in the maritime prosperity, the transfer of shipping activity to new docks lower down on the Thames. Uh, so, you know, you get this idea that Holmes is getting information, even when he's not talking about it, from a rather uh, maritime environment of London that yes. has been well known for its crime and we've seen him in opium dens before in disguise and so i just thought that was a neat little note to remind us that although this is a story where holmes maybe isn't doing a heck of a lot of sweat he's still you know he's still collecting things in his he's, little web he's going through, he's going through the motions uh yeah he's yeah. you know he's 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 uh, what's the word he's uh doing his due diligence Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that and that includes for him, you know. If you recall, like even in the sign of four, he described he 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 disguises himself as like an old sailor. So it's kind of uh, the same situation there, where he's in disguise and using that to his advantage to solve cases. Um, I'm not sure which how many detectives in real life go out and go out in disguise all the time, pretend to be to be someone that that, that they're not. Um, Hollywood, I think, and and uh, popular culture and, and, and popular fiction, I should say, definitely use this um, tactic a lot. And maybe Sherlock Holmes is kind of the one that started it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So what do you think of the investigation itself then? There's our marks for principles away. And I did kind of jolt, jolt in there with a, a bit of environment. And I probably shouldn't have. But insofar as it connected to disguise, I guess it was important. The uh, investigation I liked uh, in terms of the overall story is what I'm trying to say. Like I liked the overall story and I liked... The, the, I, I, I liked uh, the presentation. I liked the, 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 you know, the maritime feel to it. You know, the whole kind of 
grizzly sea dog uh, atmosphere that the story had and everything and past crimes coming to haunt people. You know, that's very common trope that Sherlock, Arthur Conan Doyle uses, but he used it well in this one. And he, I think he uses all his, all of his fortes to, you know, create a really good see a good yarn, I guess you could say. Um, the investigation itself I found is another case of information being withheld and we're meant to, for, and Watson and Stanley Hopkins are all stupefied or in, in Hopkins case, uh, totally off the, you know, in, in the opposite direction where we know Sherlock Holmes knows something. We know this guy, Nelligan did not freaking Trent did not just be his, his own description did not, you know, um, run through, uh, c- carry with the harpoon. Uh, there's just things that just don't make any sense and don't add up. And there's, we know there's always something to it. So that's where, where it's a bit predictable. Um, but I did like the fact that, um, it was like an old mate, an old sea, you know, companion of Carrie is the one that brought him down and, and, uh, not, 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 not for the case of because he feels, and I liked also about it, how it wasn't sentimental. He never killed Carrie because Carrie killed, you know, Nelligan's father. He killed Carrie because Carrie, because Carrie's going to kill him. And I, I kind of like that honesty about it in, in the story. So that's what kind of made it refreshing. Um, and in, and in the end, you know, he, you know, he goes, he goes to jail, you know, uh, our, our, our character, Pep, uh, Patrick Kearns. But at the same time, you know, like, uh, it wasn't a satisfying kind of like, you know, you, you know, we got the bad guy kind of feeling. It was just more like, you know, job is done. So there's a very meat and potatoes feeling to the overall, the, the whole, the whole story, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But okay. I, but I, but I still really liked it. So I'll go with the four. I went with the four as well. I thought it was a really readable story. There was a simplicity to it, but all the factors and features worked nicely. I thought together, it's it is gruesome though, like, and that kind of makes yes. it that kind of makes it interesting. I felt like that goes into I, the atmosphere. I I think is the gruesomeness of it. And, I, and uh, yeah. but 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 if you want to you know you know bring it in in context of the investigation, what if we're talking about if you're if talking about the the brutality of it, what would you like say to that in terms of how it aids the story and, and whatnot. Well, okay. Uh, what, I, what I would say is, in a certain way, the brutality of this kind of harkens back to the origin of Holmes because you think about the first two novels we got, right? Particularly A Study in Scarlet. There is a lot of kind of blood and you know forensic detail to that one. And this is a little refreshing, I felt, because we haven't had blood murder of this you know, type of vengeful way in in a long time and it, it, it made me think it made me kind of kind of um, lean towards I guess or soften towards that that original story again and kind of wish I had a bit more darkness in the homes these days uh, I liked it I thought it added a lot to the investigation uh, I also felt you know that that banking involvement and the idea of being pirated on his way to Norway to try to save the people that he had borrowed money from. Yes. I, I, I like the honesty of, of, uh, of his father, you know, and I thought that there was a nice, uh, unfortunate, but a nice twist to that. And yes. uh, I felt like, you know, honor had been restored at the end of this story. Uh, it's an interesting twist with the murderer, but I liked it. I thought it was good. The connections uh, made it fun and it was a good yarn, like, you know, overall. So you could, you could do a lot worse and recommend this one for its story. 
Yeah, I think I think it'd be I think if this was what I think of like if there was a few Sherlock Holmes stories, I would tell someone to read just to introduce them to the character. I would I would this would probably be on my recommendation list. Yeah. It just has this gritty kind of salty feeling to it all the way through. And it's a good murder. It's a classic kind of, you know, whodunit story where it's very typical of a procedural where you have like the crime scene. They investigate it. They see what's going on. The characters are functioning as they, you know, as they always are. So you get the you get the very. Uh, what's the word archetypes of all of Sherlock and Watson in this story. So I, I think it's a good introductory story to Holmes in my opinion. It is. And that's why, and that's why I think it's probably a popular one too. Mm. Well, it'll be interesting to see where this ranks when we go to, when we go to make up lists at the end of all this, like lists for non Holmes aficionados lists, you know, of our favorite characters, our favorite yeah, stories. It's true. It'll, be, it'll be cool to see where this lies. I did want to ask you this though. Um, the note about the CPR and the, the Canadian Pacific railway did you, I, I I struggled with that part of the story. I didn't quite understand what it was getting at. Did you make anything of that, or can you maybe elucidate for me? I would say I think it's more of a historical notice. Um, when I saw CPR, I, I automatically because I work for um, TD Direct Investing, um, I I know that uh, that was like you know Canadian Pacific Railroad, and the, I think what it is is that CPR. If you think about it, is 1895. This is the expansion to the West. This is building, you know, into into British Columbia, like the railroad. So, what would be the number one industry right now to have a lot of money that would eat, that people would have a great stock in? So, <laughs> pun intended. Uh, that would be the Canadian Pacific Railway or the American Railways, right? So, in this case here, it seems like um, that name itself would be a very lucrative name to mention as a as a stock that would would certificate that would be worth a lot of money. So, he, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle did his research well there. Okay. And it's I, probably a very common knowledge that CPR stock have that time period was probably a good thing to have because it was expanding and, and booming. So. Right. Okay. That's interesting. You've read into that better than Klinger did. Um, I, didn't, huh. I didn't get a lot of that. And I was thinking, well, I wasn't thinking like you were. I was just thinking, okay, so this is a stock into which he's invested. But I, I didn't really get why yeah, Holmes I, I, went I, I, on I, about it two or three lines, you know? Yeah, I didn't really... Um, let me just go here to the word mentions. Yeah, so Stanley Hopkins drew from his pocket a drab-covered notebook. The outside was rough and worn, the leaves discolored. On the first page were written the initials J.H.N. and the date 1883. Holmes laid it on the table and examined it in his minute way, while Hopkins and I gazed over each shoulder. On the second page were the printed letters C.P.R., and then came several sheets of numbers. Another heading was Argentine, another Costa Rica, another Sao Paulo, each with pages of signs and figures after it. What do you make of these? asked Holmes. They appear to be lists of stock exchange securities. I thought that JHN were the initials of a broker, and that CPR may have been his, you know, been his client. <laughs> if you're looking at stock exchange securities, wouldn't you know from from, from stocks alone that those initials are probably yeah, referring yeah, to, to, to stock symbols? <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyways, good job there, Hopkins. Mm. Uh, Holmes, 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 a lot has his work cut out. Is all I got to say. Uh, try Canadian Pacific Railway, says you know, said Holmes. Stanley Hopkins swore between his teeth and struck his thigh with his clenched hand. What a fool I have been, he cried. Of course it is, as you say. Then JHN are the only initials we have to solve. Hmm. So JHN doesn't even probably, is probably another stock anyways. And this just shows how off the course Hopkins is right now. Yeah. He's focusing on the clues that are that he thinks that are clues and not the ones that are actually there from observation and, uh, and, 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 and inference. He doesn't make guesses. He lets the evidence decide for him and goes to these angles. And that's why he's not as good as a detective as Sherlock Holmes. And that's why, and that's what you could say is good is good evidence of uh, why the CPR reference, as you said, is important. 
overall, though, CPR doesn't really have any significance. I mean, he could have said, like, uh, I don't know, like uh, General Electric or something like that, yeah. GE or, or something like that. It would have worked just as well for, 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 the, for the passage. So in this case here, CPR is just an example of a stock that's probably doing quite well. And this person has those stock certificates. So mm -hmm. the common reader would know that that's probably good stock certificates to have. So it's more about how the stocks are valuable and how they are a possible motive to the murder, even though we learn in the end that those stocks are more tied to, you know, uh, the, the victim's own crimes. Well, just before I leave investigation, I'm not changing my mark for this. I'm just wondering, like, I felt with this story, and it is a criticism, but I just wonder how or if indeed it took you out of the story at all, the suspension of disbelief that we're expected to go along with, like, okay, to me, it was a little bit unbelievable, right, that 12 years passed since the disappearance of Nelligan's father, and yet yes. that, that night that he chooses to visit is the same night that the man who's known or, and who's held Carrie's murderous secret decides to act, like, that's, that's a fucking coincidence, and then some. Yes, and how, yeah, so what Ruby Goldberg machine was activated, you know, to, <laughs> to, to lead to, that, to those series of confluences, you know? Um, did that affect your reading of it? Did it bother you at all? Uh, now that I mentioned it, I didn't really think about it. Sometimes those kind of things I just kind of miss out on sometimes, but then after you analyze it and think about it and break things down, you do see those little, you know, cracks in the, uh, in, in, I guess, in the firmament, so to speak. Hmm. Um, so I kind of agree that, uh, yeah, that that is definitely, now that I think about it, it doesn't quite make sense. Uh, I guess with what you call a plot hole in the modern ter terms. Or just a convenience for the sake of, uh, you know, length of story, right? One could almost argue lazy writing. Yes, you could. Uh, but then well, again, you're writing a 20-page short story, you know, if that. And you know, I find short stories are hard to write because you have to, you have to come up with a theme and condense it and in a way where everything is tied up in 20 pages. And if you have a kind of this big, complicated storyline of, you know, of sailors and 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 stock certificates and people are being accused of murder uh, or being you know uh, framed for murder and all this sort of thing and uh, past you know sins those kind of things are difficult to put in a, in a twenty page short story so yeah, maybe in the, maybe it was in the editing moment that you know ACD was just like fuck it you know yeah <laughs> but we've seen this before uh, this we have the suspension of disbelief I just felt like in this one yeah you're really asking me to go along with this but you know what I did because as I've already said. I got a lot of kicks out of the uh, the the sea not the seaside the the maritime intrigue so yes. I, w I went with it um, <clears throat> plus having read Moby Dick recently uh, well a couple of years ago um, I was all about a harpoonist yeah you like my Queequeg reference eh I did yeah okay I'll just give you uh, my rundown of the perpetrators uh, Patrick Cairn harpooner he held Carrie's murderous secret for a long while was trying to blackmail him. Uh, this this was cool, you know, and no problem with that. Um, yeah. Peter Carey, captain of the sea urchin, or unicorn, sorry, violent drinker, bit of a pirate who intercepted, I guess it's fair to say that, intercepted Nelligan on his way to Norway, killed him for money. Um, Wife beater. Yeah, I mean, may maybe there's no real... Daughter sing beater. No single perpetrator here, but we certainly feel a hell of a lot more uh, towards Peter Carey as being a villain than Cairns. Um, Karen's is just after all looking for a little bit of something, something, right? I picture Karen, I picture Peter Carey as, as like an evil Captain Haddock, you know, from 1010. <laughs> I don't know why, I just do. And I picture Nelligan, I picture Tintin for some reason. I don't know why, it's just kind of a, a weird kind of crossover in my head. It was interesting. <laughs> I don't know why either. But <laughs> anyway, 
Uh, Butchering I, barnacles. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't know that either of these guys deserves a four on their own, but I think together. Yeah. yeah and and the fact that Doyle's right. execution of getting us all to think about who's guilty, uh, which of these two is kind of the more complex, the more responsible, the more forgivable. I think that the atmosphere of the crime through the perpetrators is interesting enough to give me a four. So so yeah, I went uh, I went four. I, I went three point five. Uh, okay. I I found that uh, Kerry was you know he was a quite a character, but we've seen quite a characters that like 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 this before. So you know and. And uh, there wasn't really a, uh, another dimension to him besides angry, angry, you know, wife-beating sailor, uh, murder, and you know, murderer. Uh, so I didn't wasn't, wasn't really into him. Uh, Karen's I kind of wanted a little bit more of. I want a bit more of a sympathy from the author in, 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 in his depiction a little bit. And there, but there really wasn't. It was just kind of just like, yeah, no, he's just a perp, and that and that and that and that's about it. And you know, uh, it did kind of seem the, uh, that Doyle was giving him some remorse, so that's why I give like a point five to that. Um, but at the same time, I just found that as, as, as they were sketched out, the perpetrators weren't really, you know, so, something that we haven't seen before. So I was with, I was a little just, I was a little less generous. I gave it 3.5. All right. No problem. Uh, the environment. What about that for you? Would you like, would you not like? I, I like the environment. I, I like the cabin for sure. Like the cabin, the, the, the crime scene. I, I like the, I, I like the kind of like the dial M for murder kind of like one stage kind of aspect to it, you know, where it's like all in one room most of the time when they're trying to solve the, solve the case. And uh, a lot of the, the whole thing revolves around, you know, that particular cabin and the crime scene and everything going on. And uh, the, Arthur Conan Doyle really seemed to sketch that out. And that goes into the brutality that you were mentioning, actually. Mm-hmm. The blood, you know, the gore in this story that kind of made it, that, that contributed to the atmosphere. And I just want to go, you know, we're talking about, you know, about um, the great brindle beard stuck upward in the agony right through his broad breast of steel harpoon had been driven. And the idea of walking in and there's like blue bottle flies everywhere and stuff like that, right? And and it's just that the atmosphere of the cabin itself, you know, just outside of the of the main household and in the woods and stuff. And it creates an eerie kind of demeanor. And then you have the Ratcliffe Highway, you know, on the outside where this could ha- people were just driving by where this was happening. And this was happening out in the Sussex countryside. And you're connecting the countryside with... You know, maritime images of the North Sea, you know, and, and salt and Norwegian, uh, you know, Norwegian sailors, po- possibly, you know, from, D- you know, coming from Dundee and going over there. And uh, so just, you know, the overall salty attitude of everyone here. It, it, there's a great kind of like sea tale feel to the whole atmosphere of all the writing in this story. And that's what I kind of really liked about it. Um, it might be, it might, it might, you could say that this is a maritime Sherlock Holmes story, I guess you could categorize it as, and it does feel that way, that that's the kind of the atmosphere that Arthur Conan Doyle wants to espouse here. And I think he did just that. And if that was his goal, then he carried that off beautifully. So I give the environs uh, four. Okay. Uh, I went a shade higher. I went 4.5. And I know that's, oh, a good. Real, I know that's a high mark, but I just want it to touch on environs. Yeah. I want to touch on something you're saying, though, about how so much of the environment is suggested in the story you're suggested you know the swells of the ocean and the darkness during the piracy you're suggested so much of the gloominess about the wilds and and kind of uh the ratcliffe highway or the uh yeah the, the ratcliffe highway is is there as part of a notorious london that we know is part of the story even though we don't get it all but i mean these things are the backdrop right and I know we don't get them page on page, but we get enough of them to understand what yes. what's going on here. There's this there's this uh, real, like you said, an atmosphere of of darkness about this. And you know, 
The uh, the wields themselves, a really cool thing. I, I just scribbled down a couple notes here. It's an ancient stretch of forest nearly 40 miles wide, resting between the chalk hills of North and South Downs. It was heavily forested and once served as a center for iron industry, but the area remains one of England's most wooded places. So there's still this mm-hmm. sense of mystery about it. And they also connect to, like, to, the, to the Saxons, too, I believe, mm-hmm. in, in, this, in, this, in the tale. We're out in the wilderness here where civilization, you know, despite the little cabin that Carrie builds, is just, you know, not enough, you know, to for the encroaching wilderness to swallow these people up, you know. So you, you, you get in those kind of metaphors, too. So that's a good point. Totally. And that's actually what I was going to read on about just before I finish with the environment. Uh, the, the the landscape has kind of been emptied of any resource and you get this this kind of soullessness about it and it's it's perfect place for this cabin and for this man to live right um, alighting at the small wayside station we drove for some miles through the remains of the widespread woods which were once part of that great forest which for so long held the saxon invaders at bay the impenetrable weald for 60 years the bulwark of britain vast sections of it had been cleared for this is the seat of the first ironworks of the country, and the trees have been felled to smelt the ore. Now mm. the richer fields of the north have absorbed the trade, and nothing save these ravaged groves and great scars in the earth show the work of the past. Here in a clearing upon the green slope of a hill stood a long low stone house, approached by a curving drive running through the fields. Nearer the road and surrounded on three sides by bushes was a small outhouse, one window and the door facing in our direction. It was the scene of the murder. So, you know, you get a good setting, real uh, appropriate for this twisted guy. I, I liked it. I liked the suggestion of the setting that we didn't get maybe in full depiction, but it's we, it's still a character kind of in the story. And the best, the best environments for me are always the ones that support in some way uh, through personification or through some sort of characterization what's going on in the story. And there's a gloom, what? an evil, a darkness that the setting, yeah. I think, really... It, it's not just a setting. It's it, it's kind of like a character in the story. So I always go high marks with those because I love that stuff. It's almost very it's like, it's very Shakespearean, eh? Like uh, like think of like Macbeth, you know, and uh, the juxtaposition of nature and nature. What's it called? Pathetic fallacy. Yes, right. And yeah. and uh, th- this is one example of pathetic fallacy that is used uh, quite well in, in this particular tale. All right. So uh, in terms of secondary characters uh, or supporting characters, you do got this guy Hopkins for sure. And he's pretty cool. Um, you got much you want to say about that? I, I just went 3.5 for them because although he was cool, I didn't think there was a hell of a lot there we were getting. Like I didn't. I was. I saw him as uh, as, as naive and as the learner and Holmes as the teacher. But uh, because I considered Carrie and Cairns both kind of in the perpetrators not so much secondary mm-hmm. I, I i only got hopkins to work from really and negligent or nelligan or whatever his name is i yeah. went i went three and a half i think the, the the vagaries regarding the perpetrators in this particular tale uh made me give this the supporting cast a higher mark i okay. went with perpetrators 3.5 as you recall mm-hmm. but i i gave this the supporting cast a four because okay. i find that karen's and uh, Carrie kind of go into that a little bit, as does Hopkins. And I think overall, like, this was a really good cast as a whole. Maybe not a supporting cast, but a cast. And I liked how they all worked together into the story and everything. And there was quite, there's a gray area, you know, with a lot of the characters in this story. Maybe with the exception of Carrie. But I just found that uh, there was more supporting characters here than there were actual perpetrators. And uh, I just like that kind of twist and how... Um, you know, like the villain wasn't really a bad guy. He was kind of like a Jefferson Hope kind of character almost. Yeah, that's right. Um, and he is, and that, that's exactly the perpetrator. Right. 
exactly. And then you have a terrible, you know, um, evil man who was killed, the asshole victim, right? So, yeah. um, and Nelligan's uh, dad as well. You know, he he is Nelligan's kind of dad. there in the story as he, a guy he who's he, trying he, to do right. Yeah, maybe three point five is a little harsh, but I'll, I'll stick to it because yeah, that's fine. I'll stick to it. So our total well, scores. You, you, it kind of adds up, so it kind of evens out because I gave three point five to the perps. You gave four to that, and now I'm giving yeah. four to the supporting cast. So, and it won't surprise you to learn that we're only half a mark off. You went nineteen point five for the story, and I went nineteen. <laughs> and when you think about some of the more intricate tales we've had, maybe that haven't earned a mark as high as nineteen, and because I, I think it needs to be said that nineteen is is moving towards the top end of the stories we would recommend. Uh, that's pretty good for the adventure of Black Peter. Yeah, absolutely. 